Welcome back to the 174th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including a attack against crypto is coming from the U.S. government. We'll see how that one plans out. A second article talking about the crypto king in his lawsuit and then comparing them to the GOP. Pretty interesting angle. We'll get into that one. And then a elaboration on the possible conflict that could come from Hezbollah in the north and how the Israeli nation is dealing with it. And of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So how often is a crisis fake or over-exaggerated or at least not necessarily as big as some people would point it out to be? I mean, how often is it used to get more political power or to change a certain situation? You know, the one that comes to mind may begin with a C, end with an ID, have an O and a V somewhere in the middle there. Uh, you know, uh, YouTube's a little, a little bit, how should I say it, uh, particular about the way that you go about stating some of that stuff. But we've seen the government use fear before in order to get its political means, in order to see how much they could take away from the populace. So we're having another situation kind of like that with our first article, and that's why I'm asking how you feel about the situations where a crisis is used in order to gain a little bit more control over the citizenry. Throw it down in the comment section. I'd love to hear what you all have to say. Let's jump into our first article that comes from The American Prospect. The headline reads, Cracks in the Blockchain 8. So, cryptocurrency, been a topic going back and forth for the last four years that the government has said, hey, we need to regulate this. Some people said, oh, no, we don't need to regulate this. If we do regulate it, how's the best way to go about it? Is it going to be a commodity under the commodity boards, or is it going to be under the security boards at the SEC? You know, there's been lots of back and forth, lots of lobbying by uh, big rich crypto kids like Sam Bankman fried We'll get to that one, I promise. But I'll just tease you a little bit with that. But the sentiment in Washington has been all over the place. And one of the things that they talk about is, well, hey, we may have to crack down on the legal uses of this sort of blockchain technology, these different cryptos that while, you know, pretty traceable because of the blockchain ledger, if done through, you know, shell corps or different fake identities and things like that, then they could be really, really anonymized and they could facilitate some bad money laundering. And this is what has happened, or at least we found out has happened with Hamas. Hamas has used these different cryptocurrencies in different funding in order to do all the terrible things they do in order to empower them to attack Israel, you know, launch missiles across the border, so on and so forth. And now there is a want in the House and the Senate to crack down on these two. Quote, on Tuesday, over 100 members of Congress sent a letter to the White House and Treasury Department requesting information about the administration's plan to crack down on illicit cryptocurrency networks used for money laundering by terrorist organizations such as Hamas. Led by Senator Elizabeth Warren, the letter is in response to recent reports from the Wall Street Journal and CNN revealing that Hamas built up its war chest by raising millions via cryptocurrency exchanges before its attack on Israel earlier this month. 
According to the Journal Report, Hamas covertly managed to finance its operations by becoming one of the most sophisticated crypto users in the terror finance domain. Quote, we urge you swiftly and categorically act to meaningfully curtail illicit crypto activity and protect our national security and that of our allies, reads the letter. End quote. So there are probably a few ways that they'll actually go about this, because if you want to stop people from using that money illicitly or that crypto illicitly, you could identify, you could have more strict identification protocols where everybody has to put in a verified state ID or something like this in order to make sure that it's no longer fully anonymous. This will actually keep the terrorists from using the different crypto assets because, hey, no longer is it just, oh, yeah, we could do it anonymously. They're going to have more strict ID requirements, so therefore we know who is doing this type of terrible thing, who's getting the money, who's sending the money, it makes it less easy, less incentivized for these different terrorist organizations to use their real people. They may start using mules, they'll find a way around it, but the thought is, hey, if it's no longer anonymous, where it's another dissuasion tactic. There's another one, which is you could limit the large-scale use of, or sorry, the transfer of large amounts of crypto, or at least maybe not say, hey, it can't happen whatsoever, but have more restrictions, have more investigations when large transfers of crypto come through. So say you're sending $10,000 worth of crypto. I mean, that's a, that's a good amount of money. Maybe they'll mandate that these platforms have a red flag that goes up when that large of a transaction goes through. And therefore, hey, we're going to do a little bit more research on this $10,000 that's going to an IP address somewhere in the Middle East. And they could have a more targeted response. They could say, oh, no, we're only going to look at money that is transferred to a certain location or in a general region, but that probably won't lock things down. They'll eventually expand it because the terrorist organizations will just start funding outside that region. They'll find out, and then they'll say, oh, this is a security threat. We're going to crack down again. So if you can't tell, I'm a little bit cynical on all the different ways that they could power grab on this one. I won't lie. Cryptocurrency is a way to decentralize the power of the government. But if you impose more identity locks and make it harder for people to do it anonymously, well, guess what? Some people like cryptocurrency because it is anonymous, not even just for their illicit deals, but also for their normal everyday deals. Now, it is a little bit harder because most different platforms do have some sort of identification verification so that when they see that unique ID on the blockchain and trace it back to that account, it's not a fully anonymous account. It does have an ID attached with it. But it kind of discourages people from using it in a way that some people might not find socially acceptable. You should have the freedom to do that, in my opinion. But also, once again, it brings all the power back to the U.S. government. Well, think about this. While cash is an instrument of the U.S. government and while the power lies in them, that $1 bill, it can be tracked from location to location, but very often if you're using physical cash, you can get away with not having all of your transactions known. I mean, you could give it to a random guy on the street corner and then he could go buy stuff. And then when they're tracing it back, they're like, oh, the trail ends here. If with a blockchain technology where you're better able to lock down on people's identities in these accounts, it will be even easier for them to track exactly where you're spending your money. And people will say, okay, well, hey, it's not a big deal. I'm not, I'm not doing anything illegal. I'm not sending my crypto to Hamas. 
But let me ask you this question. What if the U.S. government decides that an organization you do support is a domestic terrorist organization? I mean, we've seen misclassifications of different groups or just categories of people in the U.S. in the past. We saw in Canada, which is a Western world, a little bit further along than us, but still, if you want a Western example, they actually stopped different types of payment going toward the trucker convoy. They said that, oh, well, no, this is a threat to the security of Ottawa, or I don't know if they ever really, really elevated it to national security, but the point still stands. They said there was a crisis. They said it was an emergency. They defined a certain group of people as bad actors and then used that as justification in order to shut down payments. And if your name, if you don't have it fully anonymized and you're using an account with your name on it that has been mandated by the government, then guess what? You are directly connected to that, and they can sanction you. They can stop you from sending money because they're afraid that you'll find a way around it if they don't want you supporting a certain group because it's a crisis after all. No, no, no. We can't have anybody donating to these people. This is a crisis. They're threatening our democracy. And I know it sounds a little conspiratorial, but you do have to take these sort of arguments to their logical conclusion. You have to think of these weird scenarios because maybe you really love that environmentalist group down the road from you. Maybe they're planning a protest in front of a police station or in front of a tree or a forest that's going to be taken down. Maybe they want to protest at a, a lobbying firm. I don't know. But eventually maybe it gets in the way of certain activities of the government. The government says, oh, hey, this is, this is some specific, uh, suspicious behavior you know, they're encumbering us. You know, we think that there may be some more extreme elements. We're going to say that you can't send any money to them. And now, all of a sudden, you're completely restricted from sending money to a cause that you believe is noble. So take it to its logical conclusion on that one. You'll be a little skeptical, maybe just a little bit, little bit paranoid. So that's the first half of the rant. And I say first half. I'm going to make the second part a little bit shorter. But the other part was in the headline. They were talking about the blockchain eight. And these are eight congressmen and women who have a very particular view. They've been lobbying in a very particular direction. And some of them have started to peel off a little bit with this one. I think maybe because it's a really hot issue, but also because they realize that, hey, my previous position may not be 100% tenable. Yeah, we do have to worry about these criminal elements. So... Quote, however, two Blockchain 8 members did sign on to the letter. Remember, the letter is in support of these sort of overreaching government regulations. Sorry, that's, that is biased framing on my point. They signed on to the letter demanding that we find a way to crack down on crypto in order to stop illicit money from going to these terrorist organizations. Sorry that I was so biased and my framing was uh, just a little, little heavy-handed. Quote, suggesting that solidarity on defending crypto from all regulatory assaults is waning on Capitol Hill as the use case for digital currencies becomes terrifyingly real. Reps Richie Torres and Tom Emmer did not sign the letter. Both have received fawning coverage from the crypto tech press for their efforts to block regulatory action, and both have condemned the Hamas attacks on Israel civilians, which have killed nearly 1,400. Torres, in particular, has been one of the most aggressive uh, attack dogs against SEC Chair Gary Gensler, his recent crackdown on crypto exchanges, which he impugns as a weaponization of the agency. Torres 
interrogated Gensler directly during a recent hearing held in the House Committee on Finance Services, taking issue with Gensler's designation of crypto as security, as a security, which would trigger significant disclosure and other regulations. So this is also where the flashpoint, or that's how they describe it, the flashpoint is of whether it should be a security under the SEC or a commodity under the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which would completely change the amount of paperwork that these companies have to do, the different class of asset, therefore the different reporting that you have to do as a customer, how it's going to be taxed, things like this. So you can see there's a little bit of pushback. Two members signed the letter. Maybe they're realizing that their position is untenable. Two others did not sign the letter. They're still holding strong. So, and then there's four somewhere in the middle that we don't necessarily know their full stance on it. They obviously didn't sign the letter, but they're not coming out really strong against it. So the contingent of blockchain supporters and the ones pushing back against this regulation and the ones that are probably advocating for a lot of the business techniques that some of the crypto people want, or even just the average citizen who wants crypto to be a news form of payment, or I would say exchange that is not controlled by the government. They've been fighting for those sort of people on the the hill there in Washington. And now we're starting to see the cracks, and it is concerning to some people. You've seen some dips in crypto prices that maybe some of this most strong word, this most amazing coalition that has been defending them is actually going to split apart here soon, and we may see more regulation coming down the pike. So just keep in mind, remember how crises are used, crises are used, and remember how much power the government has to, or sorry, how much this will empower the government to take away some of the things that you hold dear or even in the future that you may find as an important tool to go around a government that is too powerful. Because if blockchains decentralize and the government does become too overreaching, using the blockchain as a way to circumnavigate them, to not use their dollar, to not allow it to be bolstered by your purchases, imagine that world where the government is no longer actually on your side and you have to use crypto. But no, you gave in when they were trying to heavily regulate it. So just think about all these sort of things. I mean, maybe a little bit too high-minded. Maybe you just want to go through your day, but it's important. At least I think it's an interesting enough topic that I brought it up. All right, let's jump to our second article that comes from Bellwork. And this one is the Republican bankruptcy. So when I first clicked on this, I was like, okay, the, the Republican bankruptcy, what do they mean? And then I realized they were going into FTX and the GOP. I was like, okay, this is going to be an interesting one. This is going to be some connecting threads that I'm not not quite seeing yet. And honestly, after reading it, I still don't see it. But, you know, we're still going to read through it because I think, you know, the Bellwalk is one of those institutions that's like, ah, oh, we're conservative, but we're going to lambast the conservatives. And I'm not saying you have to take the side of your side, but almost 90% of their articles are outwardly critical. They might as well just be a liberal news site at this point. But, um, you know, I think this one was interesting. So let's jump into it. Quote, both FTX and the GOP cases involve a pervasive culture of duplicity. For SBF, it was partially a question of inflating values on crypto coins. For congressional Republicans, it's a mismatch between representatives' real values and those of their base. Some member of House Republicans at the conference rejecting Jordan say their opposition is because they can't trust him to tell the truth. 
not just about his pressure campaign on holdouts, but even regarding the very simple truth that Joe Biden won the 2020 presidential election. For FTX, bankruptcy has also come. The GOP's bankruptcy can't be put off indefinitely. Republicans' electoral power is on the hook, and it is in the hands of their base that their leadership has contempt for, and they're running out of ways to indulge them safely. And with a month to go until government shutdown, the bill is coming due for all of us. So it's, yeah, I mean, that's it's an interesting argument, no doubt about that. Hey, these Republican people, the leadership there, they don't necessarily agree with the base. They don't have the same values as the base, but, you know, they're kind of going through the motions. And the Bellwalk is saying this like, ah, it, you know, it's duplicity. This is, this is the moral bankruptcy of the people who are in power in Washington. And honestly, I, I don't necessarily want to defend them, but I do want to bring up a point that I've brought up every once in a while. Yes, it is the job of the representatives up there and the senators and anybody else that's elected to be the voice of their constituents there on the ground, to listen to what their constituents want or care about and try to find a way to do it. But also, the reason elections exist, the reason that we don't just put random people there or random people just don't go out for it is because there are people who have a very specific vision and people who elect them trust them to care about their issues while also implementing their specific vision. You elect somebody not just because they say they'll do every single thing that you want them to do. You also elect them because they have an understanding of how to do it or they have an understanding of the overall values and how the system works up there in Washington. And maybe they have a better understanding of certain things than you do. Does everybody have the time to be a moral philosopher? Does everybody have a time to be a policy wonk? Does everybody have the time to understand the ins and outs of foreign trade policy? No. But certain people put in the time and the effort, and it's kind of like specialization in the job field. They put in that time and effort. We trust them when we elect them to care about what we talk about, but also to put forward some things that we hadn't even, you know, considered that could actually help us out. And... We trust them to actually have thought through some of this. So just because the GOP leadership isn't 100% in line with the base doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be, that it is duplicitous, okay? It's not like they're like, oh, yes, we will speak to the people as we want to. We'll say whatever they want to say, which is politicians do that. But then we're going to totally disregard them when we get there. Now, I mean, even if that was the, the case, even if you could make that argument that they do disregard what the people want, uh, guess who, especially in the case of House members, guess who gets elected or reelected in two years? Oh, uh, yes, those people. So they actually have to kind of say or do certain things that do line up with the base overall. And maybe it's more saying than action. But at the end of the day, they have a material benefit from listening to their constituents, which is, hey, I'll get reelected again so I can keep getting this juicy salary and keep taking those great vacation times. Can I mean, yes, I heard uh, someone comment that their vacation time is absolutely insane there. And I'm like, yeah, come on. What do you mean? I hear that, especially now with all this chaos, we're taking a recess every other week. I'm like, come on, guys. You know, maybe we uh, elected the wrong people to be in there now that I'm actually thinking about it because they're doing vacation for themselves, but not for everyone else. So let's talk a little bit more about the Republicans being off base because they do go on to compare Sam Bankman-Fried with some of the GOP leadership. 
Uh, you know, honestly, the Sam Bateman free information trial is kind of tired to me. I, to be honest, I never really cared. I didn't have any money in FTX. I, uh, I don't have any money in any of the crypto exchanges. You know, that was way before any of them came out just because they seem sus. Also, why would you rely on your assets being over somewhere like a bank, especially when it's cryptocurrency and it's an upcoming market? And we've seen some of the troubles before. Get a cold storage wallet for yourself. You know, you can have it physically or, you know, a semi-cold one, which is you have to have a certain combination of passwords and so on and so forth. And you can have it on one computer that you use, which mine is Honestly, I, I've hidden it. I don't even remember where it is, but it does exist somewhere. And maybe in 20 years when you find, like, the guy who found a drive of Bitcoin, it's like, oh, wow, it's worth a lot more money. Maybe if I find it in 30 years, then it will be worth a, a little bit more money. But maybe not. You know, I'm, at the end of the day, you only invest money that you're willing to lose, not financial advice. I feel like I have to say that even though I didn't really make good financial advice. I just told you to get a cold storage or semi-cold storage kind of system going. All right, so the Republicans are off base. Quote, it's easy to buy off the conspiracy theorists than deliver for the voters with actual policy agendas. The GOP liked the pro-life movement better than the composition of the Supreme Court, meant it was impossible to deliver the promise of abortion bans. Now that it's possible to enact abortion policy, Republican politicians said long said they wanted, many don't want to risk their seats. So actually, this goes exactly against what they were just saying, though. They were saying that they don't necessarily listen to the base, that they don't necessarily go about the their job in a way that actually listens to what the people want. And maybe they would make the argument that, hey, they would risk their seat because there'd be opposition from the other side of the aisle that would get them out. But I also think you could very well read into that that, hey, maybe their constituents are not 100% behind it, and maybe it's not everyone that voted for them that would actually want them to do something on abortion. So yeah, they're risking their seats and they're afraid of risking their seats. Guess what that means? It means that they care about what their constituents want because like I said, re-elections are a mechanism to keep those people honest because if they don't go follow through, if they don't do the policies that their base wants, they're out. And then we're going to keep going here, quote, and the abortion issue is hardly the only fault line between the donor and political class and the base. In a recent survey, Republican voters run by YouGov for American Compass, majorities said that they prefer tariffs to free trade and view Wall Street executives as exploitative rather than responsible for contributing to the overall health of the economy. That leaves the GOP exposed to the fringes part of its base, since it's cheaper It's cheaper for politicians to align themselves with Trump or conspiratorial propaganda, paranoia, than on populist policy. And you know, that one, I, I do agree. I, they take a lot of money from Wall Street donors. Everybody does. And I'm not saying, let's be clear, I'm not saying every single person does. I'm saying all sides take money from Wall Street donors, and people don't like Wall Street. So yes, of course, they... They are in conflict there. There's no doubt about that. But if it's so bad that they never do anything for Main Street, you'll, you may get knocked out. There is the one caveat that I should have brought up, which is incumbent, incumbent advantage. People love people that they know. Maybe they stop actually listening to 
what their rep says after a while, and they just keep voting him in because they know him. They know that some of the policies that he's done in the past have worked for them. They may not agree with everything, but hey, you know, he's already served our community, and there's more stories that come out of him going out and talk, or her going out and talking with the people, listening, then getting something passed. You know, if you're semi effective and you're not doing something that's completely against the base, or you're doing something that would completely outrage your voters, then for the most part, that incumbent advantage is very, very strong. But I still think my point stands. There are checks in place to keep the people who the base puts there in line with the base and caring about the base's issues. So is the Republican Party duplicitous? No, I don't think it's quite that simple. And if you're honestly going to make that argument for the Republican Party, I would say you could make the exact same argument for the Democratic Party. And I'm not going to ascribe malice to either of them. I genuinely believe that most of the people there have great intentions. They care about this nation and they see what they're doing is either a sacrifice, a way to empower themselves, but also a sacrifice giving up that, you know, job in the private sector they could have or being a media consultant or being a political commentator, so on and so forth, and giving up that time in order to give back to the nation that has allowed them to thrive. But maybe that's just me being a little bit naive and idealistic again. You know, if you're a little bit more jaded and cynical, I understand. So let's jump to our last article that comes from Daily Wire. Israeli ground offensive in Gaza delayed over the new alleged plot. This is a report. So, yeah, sorry, it just says report at the end, but it kind of felt weird to just say report. This is a just a straight report. They're, they're trying to imply that there's not too much uh, bias or, you know, it's not an opinion piece put in there. So what is or what was the delay? Because at this point it was... Uh, it's still a little delayed. Like They haven't fully gone in yet, but most of this has passed since the time that this article came out. Quote, the Israeli Defense Force has reportedly delayed its ground offensive into Gaza for a variety of reasons, including the belief that the Isra- Iranian-backed terrorist group might be planning to surprise attack the moment Israel deploys its forces. The news comes after more than 1,400 Israelis were murdered in one of the largest terrorist attacks in the history last weekend, that was carried out by Palestinian terrorists in Hamas. The Jerusalem Post reported that the Israeli military sources told the newspaper that there is growing fear that the Lebanese-based terrorist group Hezbollah was waiting for the IDF to get fully immersed in fighting inside Gaza before launching a full-scale war against Israel from the north. And this is, you know, Israel is quite literally surrounded on all sides. You know, there are some friendlier nations, but for the most part, there is an enemy or an enemy faction in practically every single government around them. And this is what they're, they're facing. And the fact that Hezbollah is trying to counteract or be a counterbalance to Israel going into Hamas, even though they, they kind of, Hamas and Hezbollah kind of work together, not really. They have some of the same backers in Iran, and they probably even use some of the crypto uh, techniques that we were talking about in the first article. It's one of those things where the hey, they're going to be the counterbalance. If you go into Gaza, it may not even be that they're trying to protect Hamas. Honestly, it could just be that they're trying to take advantage of the situation, which is something that Joe Biden warned that people shouldn't do or sorry, in this case, organizations shouldn't do. But it does show what the IDF really has to deal with. If they're going to make a military operation in one direction or the other, they're going to be pressured from the other side. So they have to go about it in a strategic manner. And I I kind of like that they're taking a little bit of time here. Not because uh, I think that they don't have the right to do anything. I'm not falling along those lines. I think that's important that 
you really take these threats seriously. Because, one, if there's a way to get Hezbollah to not invade and still achieve your goal, you need to think it through first. You need to maybe you have a little bit of show of force, or maybe with the U.S. carriers there now, well, they were there at the time of writing this, but maybe with the visit from President Joe Biden at this point, showing that America really is in full solidarity, that he was willing to risk his life going to a country actively at war as small as Israel that could be striked at any moment, especially when Anthony Blinken had a uh, air raid siren or, sorry, a missile siren go off while he was negotiating or talking with Benjamin Netanyahu the other day. So maybe this show of support will say to Hezbollah, hey, okay, the U.S. really isn't messing around here. And if we try to attack from the north, we try to take advantage of the situation as they're going into Gaza, there may be actual repercussions for us. So we'll see how this moves forward. I like that they took their time. I like that they said, okay, hold on, let's give it a minute. Let's calm down. Let's relax. Not saying we don't want to do anything. Not saying that our actions are justified. But let's make sure we're doing this right and we're not going to have another outbreak of violence from the north. And then if you probably, if you destroy Hezbollah with your air force, which is some of the arguments coming out from the people who are really pro-Israel, they're like, we will decimate Hezbollah with the air force. Well, guess who's the backer of both of them? You're going after both of the... I don't want to say organizations, terror networks that are backed by Iran in the region, and they're going to be like, whoa, 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 you're attacking both of our people at the same time. You know, it's going to cause more tension. It's going to escalate more things. So I like this slow approach. And also, honestly, it's just kind of a good practical matter. Take out Hamas and Gaza, then deal with Hezbollah. So you can redirect all of your efforts. That's what Hezbollah is trying to do. They're trying to split your attention. They're trying to make sure that you have to at least keep some people posted in the north. So, hey, placate them. Post some people in the north. Find a smart way to go into Gaza and still get it done. And then you'll come out 10 times better for it because you'll be able to redirect to Hezbollah. You won't have been invaded. And also then you don't have to worry about Hamas behind you if you want to deal with Hezbollah. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Woo Global. Cute dog patiently plays patient as a nurse or owner has to practice their school assessment on it. Yeah, I know, that's a little bit of a, a weird title, but, you know, it is what it is. So I love this story because it really shows you dogs are the best, and they're not just loving protectors, but they're also great partners to practice on if you obviously have a, a nursing assessment coming up. Quote, if you need one more reason to believe that dogs are humans' best friend, let this clip show you. Shared by Kilia Hess, this heartwarming video showcases her conducting her nursing school assessment practice on her obedient pet dog. End quote. And thankfully, the patient's injuries, they weren't that severe. You know, they weren't that bad. They were able to be mended up very quickly. She's good at her job as a nurse. Quote, the way the patient pup cooperates with Kilia tends to as Kelly attends to its injured paw and provides instructions on how to nurse it, it's both adorable and impressive. Quote, when all you have is your dog to practice on your nursing school physical assessment on. And that's the caption that came with the video on social media. And if you want to see any of these cute photos or videos, or you want to read any of today's articles, there's a link in the description below the like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine and the Twitter handle, at your daily flip where I post a Twitter tirade every other day. Uh, to be honest, the, the quality on those has been less 
than optimal. There's certain subjects that I kind of just sat down and talked about rather than at least thinking about them a little bit more ahead of time. So if you want to skip those, go right ahead. And if you want to hear me at my worst, go re-listen to those as well. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.